Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the MotoGP Extra Podcast. Joining me today is Reese, better known as Biker Gaming. Now the MotoGP circuit round 3 comes from Tormos de Rio Hondo in Argentina. Now Reese, Friday, no action, plane delays, very dirty track. Run us through the action before the race weekend even got underway. Well it was a really weird situation. I mean I've never seen anything like it like in all in my entire life, like I'm 20 and I've never seen anything like that happen in 20 years. So it was completely strange to see the freight hadn't turned up. Of course, it was just a, a freak event. The plane broke down in Kenya. Most of the freight couldn't. Well, a, th- a good third of the freight wasn't there, so most of the teams didn't didn't have all the stuff. Some of the teams had nothing. Grassini, VR46, Leopard. I think those are the three teams that stood out to me as not having anything at all. So it was absolutely crazy. So they had to send another plane to go and get the stuff. And then it was all going to be hectic. It it couldn't get there in t- time for Friday. And it wasn't fair to only let some people go on track. So all of Friday was cancelled. Then after that, we had an absolutely packed Saturday. Literally the whole day, there was stuff going on. So that must have been really, really bad. After all the mechanics and everybody was putting everything together in the early hours. So everyone must have been super, super tired. But they all did such a good job to actually allow it to happen but yeah that's got to be the first time ever that there's been more more action without having action if that makes any sense that more stuff happened without them even going on track it was super super strange yeah it was um it was put towards Carmel Espeleta this is the 500th GP race since he's taken over and uh, people are saying oh you've spread it too thin this and that saying that like the traveling from Indonesia to Argentina to Texas. And I loved it. He had a brilliant response saying, we've done 499 races and this is the first time it's happened. I think we can say we're doing a pretty good job. And I thought that was a good little fire in the back across at them saying that they were putting too much pressure on. But I do just want to have a massive shout out for the angels of the MotoGP mechanics throughout all classes. They're the unsung heroes, really. They just don't get the credit. At the end of the day, everything that has changed on the bike how often do we see small mechanicals very rare in the sport maybe once every five six rounds we see something small they do such a brilliant job for them to work through the night does a great story from gavin emmett and neil Hodson of bt sport they said they went out friday evening about eight o'clock for dinner and they said they saw tech three getting up coming into the same restaurant and having their breakfast at about half eight at night to start their day and that was the night before the crate had even arrived so I can imagine 12, 13 hour shifts and stuff. So again, fair play to them for getting the show on the road, really. Because it could easily have been another couple of hours delayed and we might even have a Grand Prix weekend. But one thing I want to draw your attention to was there was a lots of new bumps on this track. And now, according to most reports, this track has been not used regularly since 2019. So it's quite strange that there are so many new bumps. The bump into Tom 1 especially seemed to have a lot more of a effect it was a big bump in turn two and basically the whole last sector seemed to be a bit more ripple it's quite interesting to see a track that obviously they had fire a couple of years back and it was kind of out of wasn't really in working order for a while but it then ended up having so much extra bumps it's a bit of a weird one but we're going to jump in now to the moto three action we're going to start off with qualifying a rookie the aussie joel kelso p5 in qualifying what did you make of the young Motor 3 rookie in his third round. Yeah, well, he, he did a few last year, didn't he? But this is his first full season, so third right. third round of his full Moto 3 career. And yeah, I mean, he kind of came out of nowhere. 
I hadn't really even noticed him at all. I'd say over the whole weekend, but of course it was literally the one day. Yeah. But I hadn't seen him <laughs> earlier on in the day and thought, oh, he's going to be good this weekend. He went through qualifying one. And then as it's been shown in the past, that sometimes can be a, a, a bit of an advantage, especially at a track where there's not much grip. And, you know, he put it on pole. He was on pole till right at the end. He only just got knocked down to P5. So it was a, it was a good qualifying from Joe, uh, Joel Kelso. I, I, I did not see it coming whatsoever, but... You know, he seemed to have the pace and maybe, I, th I think, did he do the Asia Talent Cup? So I suppose maybe... Yeah, he was, he was he was in one of those kind of Asian, I don't know which exact one, but he was in one of the, the Talent Cups down towards that way. Yeah, so probably he was probably a bit more acclimatised to the hot conditions, a bit of the greasy, slippery track. So potentially that played into his favour a little bit there. So yeah, just really good from Joe Kelso there. Not, not much more to say about it. Fifth place, great starting position on the grid. Swiftly moving on to Ayumo Sasaki. Now, he's been a standout rider since moving into the Max Biaggi, Max Racing Squad, whatever you want to call it, on the Husqvarna. Now, he's been wild but quick. Obviously, we had the the mechanical, we'll say. We still never got a full, clean answer what happened in Qatar with his bike. Nothing's been confirmed and concrete. And, of course, the battling with Mino in Indonesia and then crashing and then getting a long lap penalty for this. He's been ridiculously quiet, quick through the whole three rounds in practice, qualifying and in the races. And then again today he was quick, but then he had the long lap penalty. So the first three races have been rolled off just because of like a cumulative of mistakes and just overriding. I believe he just needs to calm down. What have you made of Sasaki this year moving over to the Max Racing Squad? Well, he's really he's been really really fast. I mean, he's he's always shown sight, signs of brilliance throughout his career, but especially when he was sort of at Petronas, he he struggled. He never really performed that well. And to be fair, when he was in Tech Three, him and Onshu were fairly regularly up there, but they tended to crash. And that seems to sort of continued for Suzaki to some extent. I mean, Qatar, he was miles in the lead. Like you say, we don't really 100% know what happened. I don't know whether there was some sort of electrical failure, which is sort of what caused him to high side, but. That was an easy win that he ended up losing. Mandalika, again, showed good pace, then just took Mino out on the last lap, so zero points for him there as well. And then this weekend, obviously, he got the long lap penalty for the previous incident, so that's still a result of his own his own mistake. But then throughout the race, he, he was really, really fast, and obviously he managed to just get it on the podium at the end there, didn't he, With uh, even with the long lap penalty. So a bit like um, last week with Tatai, even after sort of going backwards through the pack, managed to fight his way back through into the podium. And he's shown good pace, but yeah, like you say, he should have had a lot more points, but he, he's thrown them away. Yeah, again, I believe with Sasaki, if he starts to put a few runs together, maybe he could push for a title challenge. But it is, again, good to mention that he had the long lap and managed to get onto the podium, just like last week. But... The only thing is, I wonder, will they start to add double long laps if they're seeing riders use them strategically in certain places and still manage to get back? Will they want to penalise riders more? I have a feeling maybe in some places they're going to be a bit harsher and start, instead of giving single long lap penalties, making two just to put you out of the group to actually punish you. Because if getting a, just, if you got a long lap, like it's not guaranteed if he didn't have the long lap, he wouldn't have won. But getting a podium, he still pretty much getting a brilliant result out of it, even with the three-second sole penalty for it. 
But we're going to move on to another rider who's been very strong this weekend. A rider that did all of his practice, his qualifying on his own, seemed to have pace on his own, which is a kind of a real strong point in Moto3. That is Aizan Guevara and his heartbreaking race. And he's also, in our notes here, we have he's matured. That's basically referring to Texas last year, where his rear shock collapsed and basically retired. Came into the pits, threw his helmet off the wall, punched through all the advertising boards and just threw a massive tantrum. And uh, during the race today, some sort of mechanical failure as he came out of turn three. He was lucky not to get collided with with the riders behind. He just managed to kind of get off the track. But uh, as he came in back into the pits, took off his helmet, kind of sat there and kind of processed it a bit better. I was kind of glad to see because I actually had kind of lost a bit of respect for him. Again, he's young and he's up and coming and stuff and I understand that. But the whole aspect of team, like there's people who have built that, that's people's that's your job at the end of the day, and you need to be respectful, and I lost a bit of respect, but again, it looks like he's matured. What did you make of Eisen this weekend, Reese? It was just so disappointing to see him retire in the way that he did, because he was so, so fast all weekend. Like you said, he was doing the lap times on his own. Throughout his rookie season last year, in the first couple of races of this season, you've seen his progression, his pace is there. It's really, really fast. He can definitely fight for the championship this year, and retiring out of the lead like that, it's just horrible. I mean, it was, it was the engine sounded horrible as it sort of just broke down. And fortunately, he sort of broke down in a place where he was right on the outside of the track anyway. So he managed to sort of just duck out the way. Good job it wasn't further down the straight because then he definitely could have got hit, especially with how close the Moto3 riders are. So he did get kind of lucky with where it happened that he wasn't involved. But I'm sure that wasn't his first thought. But then again, like you say, he was much more mature when he did return to the pits because in Austin, he, well, he absolutely destroyed the pit box, didn't he? But this time he just sort of sat down in his chair. Obviously, I'd assume someone probably had a word with him after Texas, kind of told him that, you know, that's not on, we don't do that kind of thing. I mean, you know, the Aspar team is a very professional team, so I imagine they were probably fairly embarrassed by that, so they definitely would have told him. So, yeah, it was uh, it was just such a shame to see him retire because I think he probably could have won the race if it hadn't have happened. He had the pace all weekend. He, he had the race craft as well. I mean, he'd been sort of leading uh, Garcia throughout the, the race, hadn't he? So it was just... Yeah, just such a shame for Guevara. Yeah, for the Aspar team to have two riders. And they actually, they did break away for a small bit and he was leading. His teammate did get onto the back of him. And I was kind of sitting there going, are they going to work together? Are they going to slipstream each other back back and forth and bridge the gap? But uh, Dennis Fodger got his hat on and managed to just, he, had, he was in the second group, got to the front of that and kind of at will really bridge the gap, which was a bit scary to see how he did point A quicker than everyone in the lap. Before we cover the end of the race, we're going to just cover one incident between Jumbo Messia and the unfortunate man, Andrea Mino. No luck I've down here for them, unfortunately. No, it was Mino's fault. A bit of a racing incident, but it was leaning towards Mino. That's a race win and two DNFs. Is this just a repeat of Mino's seasons in Mortal 3 again and again? It seems that way, because, I mean, Mino... He always seems to be taken out a lot more than other riders. He's kind of a bit like McPhee and a bit like Dovey in that way, that he, he always seems to be the one that gets taken out. And after it happens a certain amount of times, you've got to look at yourself. I mean, in Moto3, you've got to be aggressive. If you're not making a pass, you're going to get passed. That's not the fastest way to get around a track, of course, but that's not what a Moto3 race is about. It's about being first over the line, not completing the race in the fastest time, because if they were all trying to complete it in the fastest time, they'd never pass each other, so... Yeah, Moto3, you've got to be a bit cutthroat, so Mino always seems to get collected in different incidents. This time, of course, he was the aggressor, and 
you know, if you ask me, the the person that made the mistake, because he obviously missed the apex and hit into Messiah, but at the same time, Messiah could have picked up the bike. So it was, of course, a bit of a racing incident. And that's two races out of three that Messiah has been taken out by another rider, obviously being taken out by Toba in Qatar. So, yeah, Messiah's not got much luck there. Obviously, like you say, Mino's not got much luck because that's two races he's retired from as well. Although this time, you know, it is a bit more his fault. But even still, it was a racing accident. It wasn't like he just completely wiped him out like we've seen other riders do it's just been a bit of a trope throughout Mino's career that he's sort of been involved in accidents not he's not usually the aggressor to be fair usually is the uh, the rider being taken out but I think he, he just needs to be well I'd say he needs to be more aggressive but I suppose that was the problem this time it was too aggressive but I think he just hasn't been like that enough through his career and obviously he tried that on this occasion and it just didn't work for him yeah and I look at Messia in the same board as I look at John McPhee, that he's been there now in that class, obviously not as long as John, but he's, maybe you could compare him to Bulaga, came into the class, was quick, everyone was kind of going, this guy, he's going to go places, and he's kind of faded, and now today's race he did show good pace, and again he got unlucky, and in Qatar he was in the battle, you could say he was one of the, one of the boys, but... I'd actually like to see him get out of that class, because I think it's maybe gotten to his head now, he's getting so... He's gotten so many bad results where he's been quick. He's crashed out of races where he has had no need to be pushing at certain parts of the race. I think he's just kind of lost his head in that class. And uh, I would like to see him maybe move up onto a half competitive Moto2 team. But to finish off at Moto3, we're just going to cover the last couple of laps. What did you make of the Dennis Faggia and Sergio Garcia battle? All the way down to the final corner. What a move by Sergio. Yeah, that was a proper good battle. It was one of the best last laps I've seen for a while, i got to say, because... It looked like, really, that Garcia had lost it when Suzuki, to be fair, for once, actually backed up his teammates. Suzuki kind of hasn't really had the pace this season so far, but it seemed like he was a bit more on it this weekend because he sort of came through with Foggia. Uh, I mean, his pace wasn't too bad in Qatar, but obviously he had the penalty just like Foggia, but then he wasn't able to come through and ended up crashing. I think he crashed into full-on in that, on that occasion, didn't he? So... Yeah, Suzuki finally there and helping out his teammate, obviously getting in front of Garcia. But Garcia's comeback after that was unbelievable. Managed to get past Suzuki and then he risked it all on the last lap to catch right up to the back of Foggia and then got the inside of him into that penultimate turn. How close they were. I'd love to see that picture of it again because there's that slow-mo where they were virtually rubbing each other. I'd love to see an actual still of that. That'd be absolutely fantastic. But that's one of the most precise moves I've probably ever seen ever. I mean, if he been a millimeter wider there'd have been contact and there could have been a crash but uh, ultimately I think Fodger actually probably made a bit of a mistake there by uh, actually passing as early as he did he had been stronger than Garcia into that section throughout the race really and he would have been able to catch Garcia off guard like he actually did when he made the pass if, but if he'd done that on the last lap he probably would have won the race but Garcia obviously knew that Fodger was going to be able to go deep in there risked it all it paid off for him. I think it was obviously a massive combination of skill and luck. It was such a good pass, and Garcia deserved race winner there. Yeah, and a very, very solid point about how Suzuki did back it up. I remember vividly when watching it that you could just see Fajia had just gotten five bike lengths over his teammate, and I was watching Suzuki just literally being the perfect roadblock, but Garcia managed to pass him, and geez, he did so well to close that gap. Because for two corners to go, Fodge just went wide, caught it back to get the kind of a good darting run into the final little sector. But still, Sergio Garcia with one of the most surgical moves you'll see. And at that point, 
you just have to hand, hold your hands up. And again, as soon as they came across line, Fodger applauded him and gave him a high five and they shook hands and it was all all rosy. And to be fair, a solid, clean battle and at the end of the day, they can both be happy. Good result for Fodger in the championship and likewise with Sergio Garcia. Now we're going to move on to the lightweight intermediate class of Moto2. We're going to have to start off with a 16-year-old Spaniard taking pole position. Fermin Aldeguer on the... Bosco Sciorra's chassis, got to remember not to say speed up, and basically he's almost 17 but he's still 16, it's the last year that he can break the record for race, or the youngest pole position which he did of course, taking the record from Jorge Lorenzo back in the 250, now he can still beat his youngest race winner but it'll have to be done a bit sooner rather than later as they are banning anyone under the age of 18 next season on in the lower class categories. So, Fermin, what did you make of him and his unfortunate demise in the race? Well, his pace all weekend was absolutely phenomenal. I think he topped every single session. If I've made a mistake on that, I do apologise. But as far as I am aware, I'm pretty sure he topped every single session. Pole position, obviously, like you say, youngest ever pole position sitter. He's been showing the form the whole time. I actually remember, I just happened to catch the, the CV last year. Uh, the, the Moto2 category, like the first round of it, and they were talking about this, like, you know, well, I guess he would have been, like, 15 at that point, uh, year old kid, and he just absolutely cleared off on this, uh, on this, uh, Bosco Scura and that, I remember seeing that, and that's the first time I really took, you know, I, I'd heard of Aldeguer, and I really noticed him, and then I saw him come in and replace Montella a bit last year, and he showed some signs of promise, he was sort of up in the top 10 in some of the practice sessions, never really had that great of a finish, but, wasn't too bad and then the first couple of rounds this season he's shown pace but not been able to back it up and this time he put it on pole position and in the early stages of the race looking pretty comfortable of course he then got passed by Vietti in what was a really good move into the first corner and then unfortunately they had the uh, the little clash didn't they at the penultimate turn and it was a little bit a little bit clumsy from Vietti if you ask me he didn't look at all when he cut back to the line uh, if you notice later on in the race, he did look when he ran wide. Obviously, he learned his lesson when he ran wide again when Chantra was up the inside. So, I don't know, race incident, but I mean, I wouldn't have been mad to see a penalty for Vietti, to be honest. You know, fine that it wasn't the case, because again, it was a bit of a race incident. But uh, yeah, it was uh, really unfortunate for Aldegar. Huge crash, and I think sort of as he got like flung off the bike, he sort of had his hand sort of stuck on the throttle, and it span up even more and really chucked him. So, Really nasty crash. So it was good to see that he was okay after that one. Yeah, that crash reminds me of Hareth 2018 into the Dreisach corner where basically three riders went into one line. They just wanted, like Firmino took advantage of Vietti having some mid-race kind of struggles with the front end into the penultimate corner. Just seemed to have a kind of moments and just seemed to run on a lot into that corner. And maybe we didn't see a few laps earlier. It might have happened. He might have actually been expecting that move and for me might have been kind of overzealous not well not overzealous but kind of optimistic that if the mistake happens again he'll try and jump on it and unfortunately it's just two riders one line and one of them came off worse and again like you said it was a horrific crash he, he like lost the front the front went he kind of spun with it and again he kind of just at that point was stuck to the bike and throttle it gripped did a full 360 and I do believe he was knocked out on impact, but he did get up within a couple of seconds after. Did look a bit kind of dazed, but hopefully he will be okay because it was a great showing all weekend and it was kind of horrible for it to end that way because he definitely 
in my opinion, was either going to be first or second if you made it to the flag. But just before we go through the race, quick shout out to Zanta van der Hoorberg qualifying so well. First time into Q2, qualifying in P15, if I remember correctly. A lot of people weren't too happy about the young Dutch rider getting in. Again, he is another rider that is under the age limit and they've kind of thrown him in a year early. And a lot of people have been unhappy about it. But so far, he's not disgraced himself. And in Argentina, track that, I do believe he's not ridden before. Santa did um, shut a lot of people up and I was kind of happy from that. He proved his point. What did you make of the young Zanta's performance in qualifying? Well, to be honest, the whole weekend he was pretty impressive. I mean, even in the free practice sessions, he was up there doing decent times. And actually, I think in his defence, he was fairly fast in a, a few of the sessions in Mandalika as well. So he seems to have adapted to the bike pretty well. Like you say, he was, you know, people were saying he was, uh, you know, it was a bit too early. I think probably even by his own admission, he probably didn't think he was probably quite ready for Moto 2 yet. But obviously he had to sort of make the jump with the, the age gap changes. So he's probably gone a year earlier than he would would have liked. But so far, like, yeah, he's, he's not made a fall out of himself at all. He's been, you know, beating top riders. We saw obviously in the first round of the season, even when he was, you know, to, uh, a bit further back, he still beat the likes of Antonelli. I mean, he's been around the paddock for years. So Zonta's been really, really showing himself really well. And again, he, he showed that in, in Argentina. I mean, he out-qualified Pedro Acosta. A Moto3 world champion, the the guy that everyone thought was going to clear up this season so far. So, yeah, really, really, really good to see and really, really proud of him. Yeah, and unfortunately his race only lasted a lap and in turn two on lap two we did join the turn two club having a front end slide. Thankfully he was okay, obviously extremely frustrated, but... He took a step forward this weekend, and again, like you said, he was quick in some of the free practice sessions, and he actually was nearly going through the Q2 in Mandalika as well. I think he only missed out by a small bit, if I remember correctly. So again, good progress from the young Dutch rider, and uh, we're going to move on now to the race. And basically, the first five laps, it was a typical Spanish high temperature greasy track there was lots of crashing like it seemed like the pace wasn't as strong if chestino vietti had serious pace early on sam Lowe's went backwards jake dixon kind of looked lost uh augusto fernandez crashed in turn one coming together with one of the uh, vr46 master bikes the uh, yamaha squad it was a bit of a messy start it was a very entertaining start from a neutral but uh, track conditions look to catch out a lot of riders. Maybe temperatures a bit higher than usual, but what did you make of the opening few laps of the Moto2 race? Well, it was kind of typical Moto2 to a certain extent, but it was a bit chaotic. Obviously, Augusto Fernandez probably been the most high profile. He had a bad start, and then going into turn one, he, he hit the back of it. I think it was Agora that he hit and fell off, and then Manuel Gonzalez had to sort of run off the track to avoid him. So that was how the, uh, the Master Camp bike got involved there. He had to sort of go out of the way to avoid the, the crashing Augusto Fernandez, but really that's his season's not taken off so far. It's uh, not been great. I mean, IO in general have been struggling because uh, I guess Acosta's not quite done as well as people expected, but yeah, obviously once again, Augusto Fernandez bad start. Then he had a crash. Like you say, Jake Dixon, uh, he actually had a good start, but he just ran wide at turn five. And it's one of those things where once he'd lost those few positions, he then lost his momentum, got passed by his teammate. He got passed by, I think, Ayagora. I think even I think somebody else went past him as well. So, yeah, he dropped back a little bit. So it was, it was an entertaining start. A couple of crashes. 
yeah, it was a bit of a slippery track. But then I think also some of it was just a bit rookie error because obviously, like, you know, Augusto Fernandez, he just hit somebody up the back. That was, that was nothing to do with track conditions, really. Yeah, and um, it did settle in then to be one of the more kind of strategic one or two races as they do as Vietti took the lead after Firmino had unfortunately crashed in. Chantra proving he wasn't a flash in the pan, coming back, catching the leader, passing the leader and leading the race for a few laps. Of course then Ayagora had to get in, he couldn't have the spotlight all on his teammate. Good battle seems to be brewing in that Honda Team Asia Moto2 squad. And uh, what did you make of the battle between Vietti, Ayagora, Canis, Chantra? It was, a, it was quite a feisty battle for Moto2. Usually they're a bit more spread out, but for some reason, maybe the lack of track, time, data, setup, all that, maybe that could have just proved that maybe Moto2 is better when it's uh, a bit more up in the air. It did seem to be a pretty good race, and I enjoyed it. What did you make of it, Reese? Yeah, it was uh, it was actually quite a good race for Moto Two because like it, it does get a bit boring tonight's Moto Two to be fair because they get a bit strung out and I think you you're onto something there with saying the setup time because if we're being honest it's basically the Calex Cup right everybody has a Calex except four four bikes are not Calexes so if you have extra time to refine your setup then it's all about who has the best setup but if everybody's kind of not hundred percent sure they're all on the same bike so you know it's going to be a bit. A bit closer, but yeah, it was some feisty battling. Obviously, Vietti, like we said earlier, he was running wide a little bit. He had the crash with, uh, well, he knocked him and Aldeguer had the collision that resulted in Aldeguer's crash. And then a few laps later, the same thing basically happened again. But this time, Vietti didn't quite tip in again. He realized Chantra was there, managed to pick up a bit. Chantra took the lead. And Chantra, honestly, what a rider he's turning into. I've, I've never really rated him before last weekend, I'll be honest. I, I never really thought he was that. You know, I never really even noticed anything in him. I know he maybe is, he's been up there in some free practice sessions, maybe had a couple of good finishes in the past, but he's really, really impressing me. So I'm re it's really nice to see. It's good for that uh, Honda Team Asia team because, again, Agora obviously getting third place, managing to beat out Canet after a really proper good scrap. I mean, th that Honda Team Asia, they've kind of been... They've been struggling the last few years. They've been struggling really since Nakagami left them. I mean, they've had lots of riders going through. They've had Izdahar. They had uh, Pratama. I mean, Chantra's been struggling as well. I think they had uh, they had Nagashima at one point. I don't think Nagashima really gelled with that bike either. So they, they've they've kind of been lost. They've not really been seen at the front until Ayagora, really, the last season. And then now Chantra as well. So really good for the, uh, the Honda Team Asia team. And it does seem like it could be a bit of a feisty rivalry between those two riders because... Let's be honest, Nakagami's seat is what they're fighting for at the end of the day, so it could be, you know, they're both going to want it pretty badly. Yeah, and again, great point to point out that Nakagami's seat is probably the most in doubt, especially with Ayagora. Ayagora was quick in Moto3, and he was kind of tipped at a bit of a young age that he could be the next Honda GP rider. All these young Japanese riders nearly always are tipped to be Honda riders. They never really seem to... <laughs> any other manufacturers and get a look at these now there is a small rumor that maybe if he doesn't get Nakagami's seat next year he might end up on a suzuki in the future now again suzuki being japanese rins and mir mir could be going to honda it does a massive iceberg in moto gp if you just start digging under the surface of what could happen if one moves where explosions happen everywhere it's a big domino so, effect <laughs> a big massive domino effect is exactly the term and uh but it, just for now it's great to see ayagora he started off his season quite well and it was a great performance and again 
he looked like he kind of got kicked up the ass mentally after seeing his team perform so well. And again, Chantra, he was another rider. When it was a bit of a questionable conditions, he seemed to kind of excel. And, but when it came to a dry track, he just seemed to slowly drift back. But no, it's just that, again, it's the mental thing in this sport. After first victory, it's just clicked. And now he looks like he's so much quicker. And he also had a big crash as well in turn six, I believe, during one of the free practice sessions. Well over 120, 130 miles an hour he came off it, but did brush himself off and managed to come home with a brilliant podium. And uh, again, it's great to see riders proving people wrong because a lot of people, again, thought he was another Kaz Medallion and all the other million Japanese and Asian riders you just mentioned in the last previous comment. So it's good to see. But we're going to end off Moto2 with the Italian, the young Italian. And I said to a friend of mine during that race that he reminds me in this race his riding style, again, same team. His hair, maybe. The nationality. Peco Bagnaia in 2018. Yeah, That's his champion, championship yeah. year, isn't it? Yeah. I just... Just something about him. He just looks so good on the bike. He can drift it in. He's consistent. He's fast. He just looks good on the bike. And uh, Vieschi looks ominously fast going into Texas. And when we get to Europe, if he's this quick, he's definitely my man for the championship. What do you make of... Vietti so far after three rounds, 70 points out of 75. He's been stunning, in my opinion. Yeah, it's been almost a perfect start to the season for him. Two wins, a second place. And, well, I mean, I suppose at the time, he probably thought the second place was going to be to a rider that probably wouldn't be fighting for the championship. But Chantra's form this weekend shows that actually he might have lost a few points to a competitor there. But, yeah, he's only dropped five points so far. Canit, of course, is the rider he's probably focused on the most right now because Canit's the closest to him in the championship. And... Yeah, he's, uh, he's got a healthy championship lead. I mean, some of the other riders have been consistent. Canet probably is, so far, his biggest threat in terms of consistency. So, he's not completely settled yet. But, yeah, if he has another good race at Austin and then gets to Europe and continues to be fast, you know, it, it could happen. Because, I mean, we've seen riders in these weird races win a couple of them. Baldassari probably being the best example, also being an Italian rider. He's obviously won... He used to win like Qatar and then maybe like Texas or Argentina, one of the, usually two of the three. I think he did that like in two different seasons. He won like two of the first three races, but then just was absolutely nowhere afterwards. So you never know what could happen. But if Vietti does manage to keep up this performance, I yeah, really can't see anybody stopping him. He's uh, the, the VR46 team seem to be giving him a bike that he's pretty comfortable with and he just seems to be romping away from everybody. Yeah, and the big question is, if he does continue the way he has started and rocks on and wins the championship, where does he go next year? It is only his second year in the class, and there isn't really an obvious place in MotoGP for him. You'd imagine with the links to VR46, he'd end up on a year-old Ducati, but then at the same time, who's he going to replace? Is Zarco going to be gone? Is it going to be, if Miller goes, does one of them move up? Does There's a lot of... It's like Jenga, basically, you pull out one block and the rest of them fall down into each other. You need to, there's so many congestions in the uh, top class at the moment. It's going to be very interesting to see where he could end up in the future. But again, I couldn't, I could see him winning it this year and defending it like Zarco. Uh, maybe giving the Ducati bosses another year. Maybe could have, I don't see him ending up on a different manufacturer, to be brutally honest, just because of the VR46 kind of set up I believe all the other manufacturers KTM and such have their main and I don't know if Yeti fits in but yeah I am um, I can't wait till we get to Haret. Haret is always the kind of one where whoever wins a Haret you go yeah he's 
without a catastrophe, he's the guy that's going to be dominating the championship. So we're going to move on now to MotoGP. And there's a lot to talk about MotoGP. We're going to start off with the Bologna Bullets Ducati. Tough weekend in many different ways. What do you reckon went wrong with Ducati in Argentina, Reese? Well, I don't even know if it's necessarily what went wrong with them in Argentina. It's just been the whole season. They haven't really got, gone anywhere. Well, some of the riders, the, the Fatchy riders haven't really gone anywhere. It's it's a, it's just such a strange situation because Martin has actually been pretty decent. He put it on pole, well, twice now. He's put it on pole in Qatar and in Argentina. And then, of course, he came second today as well. So Martin on that GP22, he seems to be doing uh, okay on uh, it. Martin was P2. It was... A poll for ah, elation. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I said I'd fix that before <laughs> yeah. we get the abuse in the comments. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I've just said that. But yeah, it's because he was going to be on pole and then he got beat right at the end, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that's exactly. what it was. So either way, though, he's been on the front row in at least two of the races. I can't really remember where he qualified in Mandalika, but again, I think it was fairly decent. So Martin's not been doing too badly. Of course, obviously, you know, his first two finishes weren't great, but one of those was Banyaya's fault taking him out, so these things happen. But yeah, it just seems to be the Fatshi riders, Banyaya and Miller, have just been struggling so much, and Zarco to some extent as well, but Zarco has sort of dropped off the ball since around Austria last year. He kind of has just completely fell off and not really been anywhere. So yeah, it's been strange. It's been the GP21s really that have been doing well. Obviously, you've had uh, Bastianini doing pretty well. Bezeki been doing some good performances. Obviously, Marini on the GP22, obviously put it on the front row, so... Over one lap, the Ducati seem okay, except the factory ones. And then they've had some decent race results. Obviously, they've already won a race this year, so a third of the races have been won by a Ducati. So, yeah, it just it just seems so strange because the bike doesn't look massively different from last year. But obviously, Banyar and Miller just don't like it. They're obviously not getting on with it. They have this different engine to the Pramat boys, so that is worth noting with this uh, hybrid GP2122 engine. And it just, just seems not to be working for the factory team. Yeah, just a quick note on Jorge Martin. He was P2 in Argentina on the grid, P2 in Indonesia on the grid, and he was in pole, so he's at a pole, a second and second, so just to back up your yeah. qualifying, he was absolutely rapid over one lap. But I just wonder, after Qatar, Gigi Delinia and Chiabati came out, they apologised to Peck and Jackson, we're making a test too much. Could that... Be why they chose the wrong engine. I, I stand pretty confident right now that the GP22 is the wrong engine, even though it's a hybrid. Whatever they have in the bike at the moment seems wrong. And is it because they were testing so much they really didn't know and they just went with the new one? Again, it seemed like Jack, who might, again, Jack's a bit older, a bit more experienced. He did want to go with the older bike and chassis, the one that has been proven. And it was overwrote, overridden by Peko. So it begs the question, did Peko make the wrong decision for the team? And going forward, will they be able to seem to figure it out? But again, like it does seem like like Marini, again, it's, it's actually off the top of your head. It's really hard to remember who's on what bike. I know Martin is on the new one and he is doing a solid result. He is doing his futures no doubts with absolutely dominating that GP22 and putting in places where pretty much the factory team can't. Like, Saturday was just abysmal for the, the factory team. Crash for Jack, I think it was a, nearly two crashes for Jack. He crashed into turn one 
and about three hours early he did the exact same thing and got away extremely lucky with it just bouncing up and didn't tuck but uh, for now Ducati are in a bit of a rut again we go to Texas a track you wouldn't scream Ducati Harris not really a Ducati track Le Mans has been over here yeah uh, they did yeah that was <laughs> uh, history uh, you, could, you could give them that but over the years it's never been a uh, one of our favourite tracks Le Mans they actually are quite good at they usually do well again winning their last year as well in questionable conditions but I don't think we really know where they are until we get to Mugello and Catalonia where tracks they are really strong at but we're going to go on now to Yamaha are Yamaha the new Honda and what I mean by that it looks like so far this year there's one man and one man only that can get an M1 into anywhere respectable that his man is of course the 2021 world champion Fabio Quattararo but what is going to have to happen at Yamaha for this to fix it usually they've been known as the the most user-friendly if you think back to when Zarco came up Jonas Folger could even go back as far as James Tosland they all jumped on the bike and were quick but now it looks like for whatever reason it doesn't look like that friendly bike anymore even though it might be friendly but it seems to be slow compared to the other v4 especially what have you made of Yamaha's opening three rounds after a pretty dismal Argentina. Well, it's just been... I'd argue that it's basically been the new Honda since last year because Fabio was still the only person last year doing anything good on it. Of course, Vinales won the first round of the season, but he struggled so much with that bike that he quit his two-year contract before the end of the season and then tried to blow the bike up. So it's <laughs> not it's not been... Uh, great for Yamaha lately but it's just it's just classic Yamaha isn't it they uh they've been told by their riders for years they need a faster bike and they refuse to give it to them so uh they've really paid the price for it this time because they just get passed by the v4s on the straight yeah they can make up the time to some extent everywhere else like through the corners but they just it's not enough they can't make enough on the through the corners and on the short straights now to make up for what they lose on the the long straights. Now it sounds like part of that is down to their new aero package being a bit too draggy, and they're just waiting to get a better upgrade because obviously you can only make one upgrade in the season. So they're kind of waiting to refine it before they bring it. They don't want it to revert back to the old one when they could actually still improve. So that seems to be not helping them. But I think it's just the fact that Fabio Quattararo can break so late on that Yamaha. Nobody else can actually break late on it, but he seems to be able to break late on it which probably keeps him in the game a little bit more. So he can make up some of that time he loses to the, the V4s on the straights in the breaking zones, then maximizes the sweeping sections and sort of, again, negates some of that time. So he can start up high or in the races, he can battle a bit more. But we've seen that all the others can get anywhere near. I mean, Dovi, fantastic rider, great in a scrap. He's, you know, fantastic on the brakes himself. Can't do anything. More Bedelli, we saw back on the, the sort of the 2019 bike, you know, he nearly won the championship in 2020. Now, of course, that was when their disadvantage wasn't quite as big. But even still, you know, Morbidelli's no mug, Motor 2 world champion. I mean, Darren Bender seems to be the only rider other than Quattararo that seems to be doing fairly well, but that's just in comparison to what you expect as a rookie. His actual results obviously aren't up there like the other manufacturers are. So it just seems to be Quattararo flying the flag. They're, too, they're just too slow on the straights. They get... You know, they get passed by Ducati, they get, then get held up for a lap behind that Ducati. Next lap, the Ducati behind them then goes past and then again, and it happens again, and all of a sudden you're 20th place. 
So yeah, Yamaha, they're just in a mess. It does seem one rider can sort of force the bike just to get it up there. He can sort of negate some of the advantage, but there's only so long he can keep doing that. And you can see there's some races where he can't do that because there's just too many straights. So yeah, Yamaha really in a mess right now. And to be honest, they're quite lucky they've got Cotterara because if they didn't, they would, they'd be borderline having concessions now. Yeah, and Fabio coming home in P8, again, similar to Qatar. Like, if it wasn't for the wet race where he performed above his level, he isn't known for being a wet weather rider, Fabio. And getting P2 behind Miguel Oliveira in Mandalika. Again, it just seems like that a lot of people are like, when we get to Europe, they'll qualify first by 0.3 and that, but... Again, it's not a track that Quattro likes, but you still imagine Frankie to be good there. You still imagine Davi to be able to pull something that he's been good over the years there on a bike that has been worked many times there. And it's just a bit of a question mark. And like P8 behind Vinales, Binder, Peko P5. We're going to move on to him next, but a good bit off the win. And again, if it wasn't for... A few riders in front coming off, a few riders that are a bit maybe inexperienced at managing tyres for a race, he would probably have finished outside the top 10. We're going to move on now to a guy who recovered his weekend quite strong, that is Pecco Bike now coming home in P5, basically the best of the rest, the top four being Aleix, Jorge Martin, Alex Rins and Juan Mir. Of course, P5 isn't where a factory Ducati should be. Qualifying 13th, what did you make of the recovery ride from Francesco Bagnaia? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really keeping track of his position throughout the race, but then I kind of saw at the end, that like, oh, he's just passed Vinales, he's up to 5th now. It's, uh... So, yeah, it was, it was a good race from him. I mean, obviously he was struggling in qualifying, he was unhappy, he was shaking his head, the bike was shaking all over the place. It, you know, it bothered him that Alex Marquez was following him, somebody that, you know, he wouldn't have even had to think about last year because, you know, he's not a, a top contender, but he was struggling so much, even that rattled him. So, to be fair, yeah, very good comeback ride for him to end up fifth place, kind of similar to Quattararo in that aspect, getting the sort of the best out of his race he could based on where he started. Obviously, if, if Pecco had started higher up, then you, you saw with Martin what the potential was, but... Just seems like he doesn't like this GP22, so to get fifth place on it, pretty good because up until this point, he'd only picked up one point, so that's a good start to pick up 11 there, so he should be up to 12 points in the championship now, so good good recovery from Pekka Banyai there, but they definitely need to change something because he, he clearly is not happy. And uh, just for reference, the other factory Ducati, Jack Miller, down in P14. So, a track that a lot of people would have put maybe as a strong, strong track for Ducati. A lot of heavy braking, quite some big straights. But they just couldn't get it. Unless you're Jorge Martin, they were nowhere. Like, P5 is respectable for Bagnaia. Again, when he came across the line, he was... Battling Marini in P8, P9 for the majority of the race. And the fact he managed to get ahead of Fabio Vinales and Binder, is, it just showed he really dig deep and managed to pull the result out. So fair play to him for that. Again, he needed a good bump of points to start off. He's already 40, 35 points off of the championship lead. But um, we're going to move on now to 
Aprilia. We're going to end it on a high. Aprilia, Aleish, and of course Maverick Vinales. Aleish ending qualifying on pole. Aprilia's first pole position. Everyone said it was his race to lose. Maverick qualifying P6 or P5, if I'm not mistaken. And then coming home in a brilliant P7. Again, still learning the V4s. Again, he spent all his career so far in MotoGP on two inline fours. So it's going to be a big difference to ride a V4. But the big thing, what I want to start with is with Vinales. He looked like he was a bit feisty in the race. He was scrapping a lot with the likes of Binder. He was passing and repassing Marini a good bit. So it looks like maybe that pretty is giving him the tools he needs to fight. And uh, what did you make of Vinales? And then Leish's absolutely extraordinary victory in Argentina. Yeah, it was good to see Vinales sort of back on a decent level of pace. Obviously, they were 1-2 in FP2. I think it was. It's confusing trying to remember which session is which with all the changes this weekend. But yeah, yeah it was FP2. I think they were 1-2. Uh, so, yeah, Vinales, good to see him sort of back on the pace. But Aleish was fantastic all weekend. Never seen a weekend like that from him, of course. We've seen him top sessions before. We've seen him look strong, but he was the top of every session. He was the fastest guy on track. Every time he went out, it looked easy. So, yeah, I mean, what a weekend from Aleish. What a, what a bike Aprilia have given as well. I mean, look back a couple of years, Aprilia are almost sort of the laughingstock of the paddock, really. Like, you know, that is a little bit harsh to say, but... It almost was that way. Like, yeah, it kind of is the truth because you had, like, they couldn't get a rider a couple of seasons ago. They, they couldn't get one. They, they asked many Moto2 riders and they said no. I mean, like, that t tells you where their bike was at that point, that a Moto2 rider would actually turn down a MotoGP ride because the bike is so bad. But to look where they are now, it's just, it's fantastic. I mean, last year they brought a good bike, but this year the bike is really, really good. And I'm, I'm just so happy that Aleish managed to win the race. You know, if there's anybody on the grid that deserved it, it was him. The, the Grafton, he's put in the hard work he's put in those years. He's been with Aprilia since 2017. He's been through some dark days there. And, you know, he, he's finally tasted the champagne at the end of it. You know, he, he's there. He's leading the championship even now. It's unbelievable. So, yeah, it's, the, the Aprilia looks like a proper package this week. Well, sorry, the, a proper package this year. Obviously, it was a proper package this week as well. But this season, it looks like a proper bike. And... I wouldn't be surprised to see potentially another win for Aleish and I wouldn't be surprised to see Maverick start to get himself together, especially once he gets to a track he really likes, although I suppose we've already had two of those, Qatar and Argentina, but now he's got a bit more confidence knowing that the bike is a race winner. You know, he could, you know, when you, when you get to somewhere like Assen, which is a track that he likes quite a lot, you never know. So yeah, the Aprilia looks like it is, it's a force to be reckoned with this year. Yeah, and just one thing I want to point out. Back when Valentino went to Ducati, there was a big issue with they were focusing so much on the engine. It was kind of like the old Ferrari mindset. We build the most powerful engine and that will win us world championships. Ducati were kind of in the same boat. And then along came Gigi Delinia and kind of just steadied the ship. And as much as made a brilliant engine, they built a brilliant bike around that. And now they are, well, at the moment they're struggling, but like over the last years they've probably been the best bike on the grid overall and now that Roman Albisiano is the kind of top man in Aprilia there was a couple of years there where management just they were, they were all over the place with unfortunately with Cassini it was just a mess in there there was just too much going on the bike development was wrong they 
they were just all over the place. It was just messy and exactly they were the laughing stock. They weren't they weren't a Moto GP team, never mind a factory GT GP team. And again, Romano has come in, he steadied the ship very similar to Gigi. And um I'm not massively surprised that when they kind of cleaned out all the clutter, went full factory, separated from Grissini, and then have managed to kind of kind of get their hats on and focus down on to what they need to do. And they've made one of the best bikes on the grid. It handles, it's fast, it's good under braking, and it seems to do it all, which is something Ducati have not managed, Yamaha have not managed, Honda have not managed, KTM have managed in spurts, but it pretty looked to have an absolute weapon. So we are going to end off episode 3 of the MotoGP Extra podcast. But just before we end, we just wanted just to say how tight is MotoGP in 2022. Alessio Espagaro is leading the World Championship. Who could have predicted that before the season started? Some of the championship leaders, we've had no Marcus for round 2 and 3. Possibly he'll be back for round 4. Again, we haven't touched on him just because there's no... There's basically no concrete information on when he'll be back. There is heavy rumours he will be in Texas. But again, rumours aren't... It's it's kind of more if um, people are wishing him to be there because of the track and with him and stuff. But nobody really knows. But any final thoughts, Reese, on the Argentina weekend? And of course, what we'll, what we'll be facing in Texas in a week's time? Well... Uh... I think the main thing to take from this weekend is the fact we still don't know who's the best right, who's going to be the best package overall this year. Obviously, we've seen now that every single bike on this grid can win. Every single rider on this grid can win. So you never know what's going to happen. I've got the championship standings up here. There is they're super close. There's 25 points. There's a race wins worth between first and tenth in the championship. That is how close it is. Marquez, he's missed two races. And he's only 34 points off the championship. That's only just over a race wins worth. So it's anyone's game. If Marquez does return, he could still win the championship. You know, it's it really, really is everybody. You know, anybody could win. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. So I have no idea what to expect going into Austin. If Marquez is back, yeah, my money's on him to win. You know, regardless, you know, regardless of slight injury or new Honda or not, no one can ever touch him at Texas. So I assume he'll be able to win there. But then, other than that, I don't really know. I mean, Rins is pretty good there, sitting fourth place in the championship right now, only nine points off the lead. So, Rins could be licking his lips going into uh, uh, into America. He's actually finished all three races so far this season as well, which is, you know, which is a good, you know, it's a good thing for him because he's he struggled to do that in the past. He's in front of his teammate Mir, so he'll be riding a bit of a crest of the wave with a with a podium as well, just there in Argentina. So. Rins will be one to watch. Cotterar was pretty good there last year. So, yeah, there's, there's so many riders. Uh, it's just impossible to pick, really, who's going to be competitive. But those are three uh, that I think are to watch in uh, Argent- uh, America. Yeah, so only a week to wait before they head north up into North America for Texas, a track that has been gotten a lot of work done, really. It'll be interesting to see what the track conditions. It was... Pretty much a disgrace the last time we went there last year. Um, the track conditions were terrible. Like riders were getting airtime in, in in the snake section, just things like that. It'll be interesting to see the riders' feedback after FP1 to see what they've done to track 
But that is where we are going to leave it for episode three. I hope you have enjoyed our coverage of the Argentina Grand Prix. Of course, we will be back with episode four in a week's time. So thank you all for tuning in. If you are watching on YouTube, check out either of our channels. The links will be in the description. Drop a like. It does help out with the algorithms. And if you are on Spotify, feel free, if you did enjoy it, to drop a five-star review. And once again, thank you from both myself and Reese, and I shall catch you all in a week's time from Texas. Bye-bye.